Back in February, I walked into Pastor Will's office and I asked him a question. I said, should I tell my landlady that I'm renewing my lease? I'd asked that question before. I mean, I've been here for three years. Uh, but, but this time, it meant more than should I renew my lease. This time, what I was really asking was, do I tell my landlady that I'm renewing my lease, or will I not have a job after this year? Because I was being evaluated, I was being judged, I was being critiqued on my performance. I was being evaluated on, on how I was growing in leadership as a pastoral intern. I was being evaluated on my abilities to serve in the roles that I'd been placed in. I was being evaluated on if I fulfilled the needs of what Crossroad had. And the reason that is significant, the reason that uh, my job performance mattered is because I needed to make sure that I had the resources to pay for my lease. I didn't want to sign a lease and then not have a job and that's, that's a bad situation to be in. So I, I needed a place to live, and so I needed to know, is, am I going to live in this apartment, or do I need to move back home to New York? And the reason I needed money to pay for that lease is because of the relationship that I have with my landlady, right? We're not friends. She doesn't just let me live in the apartment for free. Uh, no, the, the relationship we have is a business relationship. It's based on a piece of paper that I walked into the office and signed saying, you provide for me this apartment and I'll pay you. I'll pay you for the entire year, all 12 months, so that I can keep my stuff there, so that I can sleep there, so that I can live there, so that I can take my showers there, so that I can invite my friends over and hang out, right? I'm paying based on this contract, based on this, this business relationship. And so, as we walk through the text this morning, I want you to think of these three challenges and how Jesus provides real relational security by his cleansing. Here are the three things, right? Being judged by our performance, annual renewals that we find ourselves in, whether it be apartments or know, TV subscriptions, as well as business type relationships. So we're going to pick up right where I left off. Um, I read Hebrews 8 verses 10 through 12. And so in verse 13, it says this, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, 
and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, as we prayed earlier, would you open our minds, open our hearts to understand the depth, the reality of what Jesus has done. Help us to to understand this passage even though it seems complicated and to let that truth sink in and to renew our, our minds, renew our lives and to transform us into looking more like Jesus. And may you be glorified through that process. Amen. All right, so this passage uh, is a little complicated. So what I want to do is just walk through it more slowly. But before we do that, I want to take a quick picture at what the tabernacle looked like. And I know this image is a little small, so I apologize if you're sitting in the back, but that'll teach you. Um, <laughs> so, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, as, we, as we look, right, uh, here's the area, but um, there's, a fir- there's a curtain right here, right? And that separates this courtyard from the holy place. And so into the holy place, right, only the priests could go. So the priests are, are separate from the rest of the people, but they're allowed to go in here, and their job is to go in there daily, and they perform these, these ritual duties um, in, in that area. So there's another curtain that separates the, the holy place from the most holy place. And there's one priest selected out of all of the priests called the high priest, and he would go into this most holy place. But unlike the first section, right, the holy place, where they would go in every day, this high priest would only go in once a year. In this, in this most holy place, uh, as the passage talked about, there's the Ark of the Covenant um, with the cherubim on top of it and the mercy seat there. And it's from this location that God speaks to his people. Um, but again, the high priest would only go in once a year. And so this once a year time is known as the Day of Atonement. And so what would happen on this day? Well, uh, the high priest would, would slaughter a goat, actually two, um, and then bring it through this first section through the holy place into the holy place. So he'd carry the blood, not the goat. Uh, so after he slaughtered it, he'd carry the blood in and he would sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so um, another thing I want us to recognize is typically when we see pictures and layouts of the tabernacle of the temple, it's always going this way. So uh, I know this one's really small, but again, it's the same thing, right? The gate is on the east side, which is kind of weird, but... 
Uh, that's just how it is. That's how God designed it. And his point is uh, there's this theme of east to west. So from east, as we travel west, we actually get closer into the presence of God. So the temple layout diagram is intentionally designed for that process, right? There's this gate, there's this curtain, there's a second curtain. The closer we get, there are more protections guarding God, but the further west we go, uh, the closer we are to God. And so um, this uh, illustration, this diagram that I have, uh, it shares that flow, um, which is backwards, right? We read left to right, um, but this illustration is moving right to left. So it's to mimic and copy this same concept, right? Right to left, east to west. I know technically we're facing south, so if I had put it right, it'd be correct, but anyway. Okay, so let's, uh, let's work through this passage again. Um, starting in verse 1, right, uh, of chapter 9 of Hebrews. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. All right, verse 1, there's an earthly temple. Cool, all right, let's keep going. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. Okay, so within this earthly temple, we have the first section, and it's known as the holy place. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, right? So have the first section, and then there's a curtain, and the second section, and this is the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, were, were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So, you know, he's saying, listen, this, this is to the Hebrews, so they, they know what he's talking about. So his point when he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, he's saying, listen, you know what's in these places, you know what goes on. Uh, I have a bigger point to make than tell you every single object that's in this temple and, and what its role is. So as we keep going, right, verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. So what happens in the holy place? Well, the regular daily ritual duties of the priest. Now, we get a contrast here, right? Verse 7, but into the second section, into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. All right, so we have the, the contrast between what happens in the holy place and what happens in the most holy place. Regular daily ritual duties, once a year sacrifice for unintentional sins. So as some of you may know, Pastor Will was not in the office this week. And Pastor Chris wasn't in the office either, so Cindy and I had a good time. Um, and I was on Wednesday preparing for, for this um, and uh, 
Will, Pastor Will, left Annalisa to stay with uh, her grandparents. So uh, Pastor George and Dottie came and visited the office, which was nice. Um, they brought Annalisa, and, and, and they're in there. We're all talking. And, and we were talking about preparing for this sermon, and I, you know, was nervous and didn't feel ready. And Cindy was like, oh, you know, anytime Jed teaches, like, it's always good. Uh, he, he has this strength. Um, he has this, this uh, strength of attention to detail. And so things go well because he pays attention to detail. And then, not in a mean way, but in a, in a factful way, right? She said, he also has uh, a challenge, and it's that he pays attention to detail. <laughs> and so, uh, Cindy knows me for this character trait that I have, that, that I care about details, I pay attention to them, I want, I want things to be orderly, I want them to be organized, I want to know what's going on, um, I need a plan. And, and this character trait, right, sometimes uh, it comes out and produces a good result. And sometimes the character trait comes out and it produces a negative result. Um, except that in verse 7, what, what is being talked about here, um, it's not a character trait, right? Typically, when we think about sin, we think about two categories. Um, we think of wrong things that we're not supposed to do. And so, if we commit that wrong act, right, it's a sin of commission. We're doing something that's wrong. Um, but then there's another category, right, of, of there's a good thing that we should do, and we don't do it. And so, when we don't do that thing, that's a sin of omission, right? So, there two categories, sins of commission, sins of omission, and we generally think of our sin in those two camps, except that this passage is not talking about the, the sins of commission or omission. When it talks about these unintentional sins, it's, it's not a character trait that sometimes produces good, sometimes produces bad, it's a character flaw. It's a character defect that just like my character trait comes out, this character flaw, this character defect, our sin nature just comes out of us. We don't even realize we're sinning. And, and that's what this, this sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people is for. It's not for oh, I did something wrong, or oh, I sinned by, didn't do, by not doing something good. No, it's, it's the, the flaw within us, this, this sin that just comes out and we don't even realize it's happening. Al Mohler helps us understand this uh, by saying, due to the pervasiveness and insidious effects of sin on our entire beings, we can't even recognize the times we're unaware we're sinning. We can't even recognize the times we're unaware we're sinning. It's these unintentional sins of the people that precipitated the high priest's ministry and made it necessary for him to offer a blood sacrifice. So again, what does this unintentional sin mean? Well, it means that we have a sin nature, right? There's, there's a character flaw, a character defect within us. 
All right, let's, let's keep going here. Verse 8, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So by this once-a-year sacrifice, the Holy Spirit is saying that access to God is closed as long as the first section still stands. In verse 9, right, which is symbolic for the present age, the first section. The first section is symbolic for the present age. Uh, is the present age now? No, really what it's talking about is this Old Testament law era. So it's kind of confusing because sometimes we talk about like the outer section of the temple and the inner section, um, but the author keeps using like the first section and the second section, and he, he's doing it on purpose, right? Um, because when we see first section, we think this, right? Because he keeps on using this first, first. And so this is true, but as we'll see later, this first, first section uh, of these regular duties and rituals, right? It's really symbolic of the earthly temple. So that's where he's going. That's where he's headed. Uh, if we continue on in verse 9, it says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So, so these, this once a year sacrifice on the Day of Atonement so the Holy Spirit uses that to indicate that these, these regular and daily rituals aren't good enough, right? And so we need something better. Uh, so the only thing that these do is, is it's just fleshly, bodily cleansings. Um, it doesn't solve the real problem. So now that we have, hopefully, a solid understanding of the background of, of where uh, the author of Hebrews is going. Let's see how Jesus provides real relational security with a permanent location. If you're taking notes, that's number one. Um, okay, uh, when I first moved into my apartment three years ago, the only stuff I had with me was what I could fit into my tiny Honda Civic. I only made one trip uh, to Iowa from Ohio at that point in time. And even though my car was packed all the way full, I, I didn't have that much stuff. Uh, I didn't have a mattress. Um, I didn't have any furniture. I didn't have anything basically other than clothes and my instruments. And a month or so went by, and eventually my parents brought a truckload of stuff. Uh, and they blessed me, right? They blessed me with their old bedroom set. They blessed me with, with dishes um, so that I could learn how to cook for myself. Um, <laughs> uh, and, I, and since then, I've lived in the same apartment all three years. So you might ask, why? Why have you lived in the same apartment? Is it the best apartment in Ames? No, probably not. Actually, right down the street, there's one that's way nicer than mine. Uh, 
I could walk there and it'd take me like two minutes. Well then, maybe my apartment is the cheapest apartment in Ames. Well, that's not true either. Actually, I have a pretty good relationship with Liz and she'll send me emails of, of different places that are, that are cheaper or more, uh, would, would be better to live in. So, so why haven't I moved? It's not the nicest place and it's not the cheapest place. Uh, well, in all honesty, I don't want to pack up all my stuff. <laughs> Moving is horrible. And I don't, I don't want to have to pack up everything. I mean, like, I look at this bedroom set, and I'm like, I have a Honda Civic. How am I going to get this queen-size bed out? I don't want to do that. Um, and so I haven't moved, right? Because what I'm longing for is this permanent location. I'm longing for a home where I can put the bed in its place and I know that it belongs there and that I won't have to move. And, and maybe that's like unrealistic, but I just don't want to move. There's it's so much work. I want that permanent location. And so here we, here we transition, right? Um, so as we keep reading in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as the high priest, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect, perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. So we get this transition, right? We're moving from the earthly temple, or the first section, right, into the second section. And so we have the heavenly temple. But this transition between the earthly temple and the heavenly temple isn't just the difference between an apartment and a house. Because both of those things are impermanent, right? They will not last forever. And so let's think through, let's think about the impermanence of the earthly dwellings or temples within Israel's history. Right? In Exodus 25 through 30, uh, God instructs Moses, build the tabernacle, and here are all the details. And so they build the tabernacle, and it's not an apartment, it's like a mobile home. They pack it up and move it and then put it back together somewhere else. And so God has a mobile home. And in 2 Samuel 7, David's like, why do I get a house and God has this mobile home? We gotta, we gotta build God a house so that he can live in a permanent location with us. And as we've learned, right, because we're working through Second Samuel, God says, listen, I don't need you to build me a house. I'm gonna build your house. Uh, but I appreciate, you know, I appreciate it. And so you won't get to do it, but your son Solomon will. And so in First Kings 5 through 8, uh, Solomon builds and dedicates the temple. And so God moves from his mobile home into his giant house. And what happens to that? Well, Israel falls into this spiral of, of sin, and the nation splits in two. And the southern nation, which has Jerusalem, has this temple, eventually God is so fed up with them that he brings in Babylon. They come and 
decimate the temple and carry his people away into captivity, which they're in for about 70 years. And after that 70 years, right, they come back. And in Zechariah 4, verses 8 through 10, uh, we see that Zerubbabel comes and he rebuilds the temple. Uh, there's this saying in, in Bible schools and Bible college, uh, Zerubbabel comes back and rebuilds the temple out of all of the rubbable because it had been destroyed. So, so it's rebuilt. It's not as big. It's not as, as fancy as the first temple, but at least, it's a, at least it's something, right? And is that temple here today? No, because, you know, 400 years later, uh, in 70 AD, Rome is so annoyed about Israel and their revolts and riots and all that stuff, and so they come in, they destroy Jerusalem again, they destroy the temple again, and so we see this impermanence, right? Even in the transition from a mobile home to uh, a home, a house, even the houses are destroyed twice, and so it is in God's perfect wisdom that instead of using a, a house, a temple uh, built by hands, he uses the perfect tent, the heavenly temple. Why? Because it can't fall apart and it won't be destroyed. Because what happens in that house stands. Why? Because the house stands. And so, so we see that Jesus provides relational security through this permanent location, but now we need to see how Jesus provides relational security through a perfect sacrifice. Continuing in verse 12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. So Jesus performs a sacrifice one time with his own blood, and this brings eternal redemption. So uh, we keep reading, right? Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This sacrifice purifies our conscience. Well, what does this mean? What does purifying our conscience mean? Well, if we look back at our chart, right? Uh, I know it's small now. I apologize, but... Um, what happens in this second section, right, this annual renewal uh, of, of the sacrifice for our unintentional sins, um, Jesus performs this act, but this time it's different, right? It's not an, it's not an annual renewal. It's, it's a one-time payment. Instead of just covering the sins and saying, okay, one more year, okay, one more year, okay, one more year, he says, paid in full. 
And so he takes the sins upon himself and pays the price for them. But how perfect is it? This purifying of our conscience isn't just the forgiveness of my sins. They're forgiven forever. Our character defect, our, our character flaw, the sin nature is cleansed. It's not just covering it and saying, okay, we can, we can have this uh, business relationship with God for one more year. No, this flaw within us is, is cleansed, it's paid for. Instead of covered, it's paid in full. It's also perfect because as Gentiles, right, we're, we don't have this history of, of sacrifice. And so we don't even know how bad off we are, right? Israel had the law. They had, they had God saying, this is good, do these things. This is bad, don't do these things. And in addition to that, there's this sacrifice once a year to remind you that you have a sin nature and that you're not good enough and that it's only by this covering that I, we can have some sort of relationship. So Israel knew, but what do we know? How do we know what's right and wrong? We don't have the law. And so it's, it's perfect because while we still had no idea of the character defect that we even had, he still came and provided this perfect sacrifice. And so now that we understand how Jesus provides real relational security through his perfect sacrifice in a permanent location, let's praise him for the riches that he's drenched us in. of kindness he lavished on me his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood neath the debt we could never Not only did Jesus provide real relational security through his perfect sacrifice in a permanent location, but the security persists through his love. Verse uh, 15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them 
from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So in verse 15, right, uh, we're promised an eternal inheritance. We've been redeemed from the old covenant and we're set to receive an eternal inheritance. But how does this work, right? How, how does this, how do we get this? Well, uh, as we'll continue reading, right, we'll see that um, covenants are initiated. They're, they're started with blood. And so Christ's sacrifice initiates and starts this second covenant, except that it's not simply a covenant. It's not just, just a covenant. It also is a will. When Jesus dies, his will is that we receive an inheritance. And so the old covenant is a covenant. The new covenant is a covenant and a will combined. And, and Jesus' sacrifice accomplishes both of these things. Again, in 16, it says, the one who made it must be established. So because of Jesus' death, this will must be established. Verse 19, or 17, 17, 18, I can read. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and it, book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, Almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So because of this old covenant, we see and we understand the necessity for blood and that it cleanses. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But by the heavenly things themselves, but, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies. They're copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by, his by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, 
but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so we see that the new covenant is guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood guarantees that, that this will and this covenant will take place. It will have success. Not only is there a perfect sacrifice performed in a permanent location, but it is the will of Jesus that we receive an eternal inheritance. And because he wills it, it will happen. Because it wasn't a sacrifice of a goat in an earthly temple, but it's the sacrifice of the Son of God in the heavenly temple. And so we see this relationship change. It's no longer a business relationship based on a piece of paper and sign on the dotted line with the blood of a goat. It's a familial one. We now have access to God. The curtain that separated God from us is torn down. We're invited into the house of God with no restrictions. We have the VIP pass. We don't own the home. It's not our home, but it has been bought for us. But again, it isn't ours. Really, what he's doing is buying our access. We can't meet the requirements. We can't pay that annual fee. It's never going to be good enough. And so by Jesus' sacrifice, he buys our access into the presence of God. But that means he's not just buying our access. That means he's buying us. Well, how does he own us? Well, our performance, our performance of our sinful character defect is now paid by the perfect performance of Jesus' sacrifice. And so we see this connection. Our sinful defect is paid one time, not annual, one time. And so that takes care of our performance. Our need to continually renew the lease with God by a yearly sacrifice is purchased by Jesus' sacrifice within a permanent location. No longer is this a, a, a lease, but it's a permanent location. It cannot be destroyed. The business relationship with God based on a paper contract is transformed into a familial relationship where we receive an eternal inheritance willed by and purchased through Christ. And so the access that is closed is now open. So we want to long, we want to desire to enter into the heavenly house being prepared for us. And we don't do that by walking into this church building. We do that by gathering with our family. And we are family because our lives belong to the same bloodline, the bloodline of Jesus. And what do we do in our homes? We eat, we fellowship, we commune. We don't eat with people that we don't have relationships with. 
I will never be eating a meal with the President of the United States because I don't know him and he doesn't know me or even some movie star or sports star, whatever. I don't know them. And so I won't be, I won't eat with them. That's something that you do with somebody you know. But because of the security that we find in Jesus, we eat at God's table 